Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. We start today's show with the topic and the story of following the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey. And just this morning, a crime scene technician has testified in the trial of the three men accused of killing Aubrey. We have joined with us for some insight today. Paige Pate, a senior trial attorney at Pate Johnson and Church with over 25 years of experience in criminal defense and civil litigation. And he's been named one of the best lawyers in America by U.S. News as well. Paige, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here along with Professor Christopher Slobogan, Chair and Law Director of Vanderbilt Law School's Criminal Justice Program since 2009, and one of the top five law professors in the country over the past five years. Thanks so much for being here, Professor. Thank you for having me. So, gentlemen, this week is the first full week of testimony in the trial of the three men charged in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia, last year. The jury selection was set last Wednesday, and we'll get to that process more in a moment. The trial started on Friday with opening statements, and the prosecution called its first witness, William Dugan, who was one of the first police officers to respond to the scene after Arbery was shot and killed. And as Joe mentioned, there was testimony this morning from a crime scene technician. Um, Paige, can you bring our listeners up to speed on what happened on Friday and this morning and what we can expect to see in this case in the coming days? Uh, Sure, Christina. I am actually here in Brunswick. We have an office in Brunswick, Georgia, and it's literally across the street from the Glenn County Courthouse where the trial is taking place. I know all of the lawyers involved in the case. I've been in front of this judge before, so uh, I, I have a general idea of how I think he's going to handle the case. On Friday, we heard opening statements from the prosecution, as well as from two of the three defense lawyers, the lawyers for Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael. The lawyer for Roddy Bryan decided to hold on or hold off on his opening statement until after the state had presented its case. That's something you can do here in Georgia. It's kind of an unusual strategy, but that's what he decided to do. I think both sides had strong opening statements. Obviously, the narrative is very different from the prosecution and the defense. The evidence is not much in dispute. I mean, the video is critical here, but it's how you see the video that really matters. Uh, After the openings were done, we did hear testimony from one of the Glenn County police officers who uh, was first on the scene to document what he saw. Uh, And today they've continued along that line with additional local law enforcement officers talking about documenting the scene. And also now we're hearing some of the initial statements made by the defendants shortly after the incident occurred. So that's where we are as of today. Let's talk about the jury makeup. We've got uh, a jury poll that was uh, one third uh, African-American. Yet the jury we ended up with, which consists of uh, 12 jurors and three alternates, consists of all but one of those people being white. We've got one African-American on the jury. Now, race is inextricably linked to this case, right? We've got the trial of three white men accused of shooting a black man. How is it, Professor, that this jury ended up with only one black person on there? And how much do you think that will be an issue down the road? Now, the the judge in this case said that 
um, uh, the jury would be seated nonetheless. He said this court has found that there appears to be intentional discrimination, yet allow the jury to be seated as selected. So explain to us the dichotomy there between what the judge said and the, the jury that he allowed to be seated. You know, basically, this is an artifact of Supreme Court case law, the case of Batson versus Kentucky. Um, the defense excluded uh, a number of black jurors using the peremptory challenges. Um, and of course, with peremptory challenges, no reason needs to be given for the challenge unless the other side can show a uh, prima facie case that there is exclusion based on race. And the prosecution was able to do this because so many black people were excused using peremptory challenges. Under Batson versus Kentucky, um, even though peremptory challenges usually do not require reason in order to exercise them, if it appears that it's a prima facie case of racial exclusion or intentional discrimination on the basis of race, um, the other side, in this case the defense, has to explain why they made the exclusion, why they exercised the peremptory challenge. Um, and that reason has to be both race neutral and genuine. And so what the judge found is that the prima facie case of discrimination on the basis of race, then the defense was able to give, at least in the judge's opinion, race neutral and genuine explanations for why each of those black jurors was excluded. So for instance, uh, one black woman said, apparently during questioning, this whole case is about racism. And the judge found that to be a race neutral and genuine explanation for why the defense attorneys excluded that particular juror. And as a result of this, we ended up with the makeup that you described, that is only one black person on the jury. Paige, the, uh, the defense had 24 strikes and used 11 of them to exclude black people. Yep. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, that's what they wanted to do, Rich. I mean, clearly they wanted a jury that looks like their clients and that would see this video in the way they hope um, that they're going to understand their clients saw the video. So uh, not only are you absolutely correct that a third of the population in Glenn County is African-American, but even after going through two and a half weeks of qualifying questions, they were left with 25 percent of the qualified pool uh, being African-American and still nonetheless struck, you know, 11 out of 12. Um, ultimately, that you know, the Batson challenge was raised. But look, if you're a defense lawyer and you can't come up with a race neutral reason for striking a juror, then you should be doing something else. So I think in this case, it was relatively easy because, as the professor noted, uh, there were discussions during the initial jury selection where, you know, people have obviously heard about the case. Many have seen the video and already have some feelings about it. So I think in a regular case, a lot of those folks would have been struck for cause before we ever got to the um, preemptory strike. So this combination of the facts of this case, the unique situation, and a very aggressive attempt by the defense to eliminate people they thought would be, you know, against them. Gentlemen, let's turn to the opening statements on Friday. Clearly a central issue in this case is going to be Georgia's partly repealed citizen's arrest law. The defendants are arguing that they were trying to make a citizen's arrest when they shot and killed Arbery because they believed that he was guilty of burglaries in the neighborhood when they chased him. How do you think this issue is ultimately going to be decided? Professor, would you like to kick this one off? Okay. Well, I think actually there are two issues the defense um, will be raising and the prosecution will be responding to. The first is 
the allegation by the defense that the initial confrontation was a valid citizen's arrest, as you suggest. And under Georgia law, even pre-existing Georgia law, and of course it's been amended, as you mentioned, um, the person making a citizen's arrest is entitled to do so, but has to use reasonable force in doing so. It has to believe that the person they're trying to arrest has committed a crime, a felony. Um, and so that's their first argument. And then after, if they're successful, convincing the jury that the initial confrontation was permissible, then they're going to also argue that the use of deadly force was necessary because Arbery grabbing the weapon or whatever he did led to a reasonable belief on the defendant's part uh, that they were threatened with death or serious bodily harm, and they acted reasonably in responding with deadly force. So it's a two-step or, or two-stage argument, I think, on the part of the defense. Paige, would you like to weigh in? No, I mean, I think that's well said. It is a two, two-part um, process. The defense is starting out, as you can tell in their opening statements, wanting to let the jury know that this didn't happen out of nowhere, that there were crimes in the neighborhood that had been reported to the McMichaels, trying to build this idea that there were uh, legitimate suspicions that Arbery could have been involved in criminal conduct, which led them to chase him, which at the time would have been protected under Georgia citizens arrest law. It's still a stretch because, you know, they may have had a legal right to detain him. But how far can you go? You know, do you box him in with two pickup trucks? Do you get out of the truck with a shotgun? And then ultimately the struggle where they're going to have to say it was self-defense. Complicated argument, difficult but totally depends on the jury and how they see this video. Paige, as you mentioned, the video is really, you know, such a huge part of this trial, but the judge has already made some controversial rulings on some of the other things you don't see on the video, including the uh, vanity plate of one of the defendants, which had a Confederate flag on it. What do you make of allowing that Confederate flag to be something the jury can consider? Well, I'll tell you, I think it would have been a lot more impactful with a more diverse jury. But the jury that they're left with now with 11 whites, um, you know, it's not the only Confederate license plate I've seen in Glen County just, you know, just in the last couple of weeks. So I don't think that evidence is going to be as impactful as it could have been if this was a different jury. Uh, and again, the state's not going to focus on it um, right now. It's already coming to evidence because they introduced some of the body cam footage of one of the local officers who responded. So the jury has seen the license plate on the truck, but the state's not arguing about it at this point. So we'll see if it makes a difference at the end. And I'm, I'm going to be curious to see if the judge allows the prosecution to make explicit reference to the license plate or somehow integrate into opening or closing arguments. And the judge might not allow it. He might allow the jury to see the license plate, but not allow the prosecution to make any hay out of it. Last question we have for both of you on legal faceoff is we'll be covering the same issue in uh, in the Rittenhouse trial in Wisconsin here in a few minutes. But one question is, you know, beyond the jury box, how much do you think the jury is considering how their ultimate verdict in this case will affect things happening outside the courtroom walls? Right. This is in the wake of some you know, incredibly high profile cases involving race over the last couple of years. How much do you think it weighs on a juror's mind that their decision in this one case might affect, you know, racial issues beyond the courtroom? Uh, Professor, we'll start with you and Paige will end with you on that issue. Well, I guess I'll say something obvious. I think they can't help but think about the impact their verdict will have either way. I mean, they might be thinking uh, that if they find in favor of the defendants. There'll be protests with all that entails. And on the other hand, they might 
be thinking that if they find for the prosecution, there'll be outrage among certain elements of the community there in Georgia. So I can't but believe that they are going to be thinking about that. Um, and then there's, you mentioned the Rittenhouse case. It's also interesting to consider the extent to which the judge is going to try to keep the jury from staying off social media so the two cases don't interact in some weird way. And Paige, maybe that's okay. You know, the jury system is designed for people to take their everyday life experiences into the jury box and not leave that uh, at the curb. On the other hand, you know, as a seasoned trial attorney, you'll agree that you want the jury focused generally. It depends what side you're on, but you'd like them to focus on the evidence. But maybe you do want them thinking what's going to happen, uh, you know, if I decide one way or the other. You, you know, you, you try to get them to focus on the evidence, but inevitably, as the professor mentions, they're going to be thinking of uh, these other larger societal issues. Absolutely. And it doesn't even have to go outside of Glenn County. I mean, this is a very small community. And all of these individuals who showed up for jury selection, and there were hundreds, were very concerned that their identity would be released because they know whatever way the verdict goes, there, there are going to be consequences to that in this community. I think just given the, the pulse of the community, and, and I live down here part of the time, I think people are more concerned about the potential for protest and destruction. And that is definitely going to be in the back of their minds as they listen to this evidence. So that's another hurdle the defense is going to have to overcome. Again, that's Paige Pate, senior trial attorney at Pate Johnson and Church. You can follow him on Twitter at Paige Pate. That's P-A-G-E-P-A-T-E. And also joined by Professor Christopher Slobogan today, chair and law director of Vanderbilt's, Vanderbilt's Law School. Thank you both very much for joining us today in the Insight. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving on to the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. Lawyers have filed suit against rapper Travis Scott and organizers for the music festival Astro World after the death of eight people and injuries to hundreds more at the Houston Music Fest. We have joined with us Randy Sorrells, a Texas litigator with over 30 years of experience in personal injury and business litigation. He's also the only president of the State Bar of Texas to also be named of Texas's top 100 lawyers by Texas Super Lawyers Magazine. Randy, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, sure. Happy to be here. Randy, appreciate it. So you're on the ground there in uh, Houston. You've handled these kind of cases before. You're not directly involved in this litigation. But talk to us about the exposure involved for the defendants here. We've already, as Joe mentioned, seen at least a couple of lawsuits. One injured fan said that the Astroworld disaster was a direct result of, quote, a motivation for profit at the expense of concertgoers, health and safety. 
and the encouragement of violence. So talk to us about what you see as the liability civilly for the defendants here. Well, you're right. There's both potentially civil and criminal liability. There was a concert here in Houston a couple of years ago when uh, a very similar uh, storm or rush of people occurred, which was foreshadowing of what occurred this particular uh, event uh, last Friday, November 5th. So uh, from a standpoint of negligence against the promoter, the producers, the performers have been sued individually as well. There's a lot to worry about if you're a defendant in this case. How much do you think uh, it's relevant that by most reports, um, uh, the singer, the entertainer in this question, continued to perform as people were pointing out some of the casualties in the audience? On the one hand, if I was his attorney, I would argue that you might do more damage in this kind of mass capacity crowd if you stop uh, and make people, you know, advance even further, or may, maybe make people upset that you're not performing. On the other hand, his the plaintiff's attorneys will certainly argue that you are encouraging this. You weren't doing anything to stop it once you became aware, once you were on notice of this issue. So talk to us about the, the liability for the entertainer here. Well, there are rumors that go around, but all this will be videoed on multiple cell phone cameras, as we all know. And so the truth will come out. But one of the rumors is, is that uh, the performer was, in fact, encouraging people to uh, continue to be boisterous and, and animated, uh, which caused a further push uh, towards and crush towards what appears to be stage right of of the stage where he was performing. That's where most of the deaths occurred. And uh, as the plaintiff's lawyers will spend that, it's an entire want of care for what's going on with the safety, health and welfare of the participants or, or the, the spectators there. And as you said, the other side would be, well, uh, no, they were, were didn't want to create an additional panic uh, environment and cause more people to be injured. Uh, in the end, there's going to be a real question as to how much insurance coverage there is and where if, whether there's personal liability. And for the performers, there may be a criminal liability of concern also. I know personally that there were lawyers out on the scene that Friday night for what are now the defendants in this case. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, the criminal liability, and then we'll talk about the investigation. But criminally, the Houston police obviously have announced that they're looking into any criminal liability. Uh, it'll take probably weeks for that investigation to be complete, given the sheer amount of evidence, including both testimony from witnesses and, as you mentioned, videotape. Uh, that'll take some weeks to go through. But do you think any criminal charges are likely? And if so, uh, who can we see being charged criminally in this case? It would not surprise me at all if there were criminal charges uh, that were filed for negligent homicide. Uh, there was enough known there, the size of the crowd, the energy of the crowd, um, the lack of security that uh, someone uh, very well will be charged uh, because with eight deaths, it, it would be unlikely that, that the administration here in Houston would just turn its, uh, turn its cheek. How much of that investigation and how much of uh, lawyers like you job or, or lawyers like yours jobs will be to dive into past practices from all the defendants in this case? Right. Obviously, to the degree that plaintiffs can prove that the promoters, the owner of the stadium, the entertainers had prior knowledge of this kind of event and failed to take steps to remedy it. That's an important piece, especially as it might come to punitive damages. Yeah, Absolutely. The, the past actions are going to be of each of those entities and individuals are going to be sift through very closely 
to determine if they've had similar events. And the initial reporting is they have had similar events. And we've learned from concerts in the past that involve deaths, what should and should not be done. So it, it does appear that there was a, a conscious disregard of what had been learned in the past that put the, self, the safety of uh, those spectators uh, at risk. Last question I'll ask you, uh, Randy, on legal face-off is obviously one strategy for the defendants will be to look to the plaintiff's conduct, right? By all accounts, these are all of these individuals were under 30 years old. We've had rumors of people injecting drugs. Certainly wouldn't be a shock to anyone to know that drug use was prevalent at this kind of concert. Do you think one avenue that the defendants will pursue is that they don't have complete culpability because some of the victims in this case were using drugs. Of course, that's a tricky argument when you've got people who died from being trampled seemingly from inadequate security measures. Yeah, that drug, the drug issue is kind of a curious one because it's not that they were doing drugs. The rumor is, is that they were being involuntarily injected with drugs. Fentanyl, I think is the rumor. They died. The ages were from age 14 to age 27. I find it difficult to believe that a 14-year-old uh, is going to be there being involuntarily eject- injected with drugs. I think the more likely cause, based upon the number of people in that environment, and some of the video that's already come out, both from when they opened, they just opened the uh, gates that day, and there's TV footage, to what we see on the cell phones, uh, I think the strong evidence is to be more likely than not that uh, it was a crush type of injury that caused the deaths of these people. Again, that's Randy Sorrells. You can find more about his firm at sorrellslaw.com. That's S-O-R-R-E-L-S law.com. Thanks again for joining us today, Randy. Thanks a bunch. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, Contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. A story we've been talking about for quite some time here on the Legal Faceoff podcast as the Kyle Rittenhouse trials began on Monday. The 18-year-old accused of murdering two people and injuring a third in August during the 2020 unrest in Kenosha after police shot Jacob Blake. We have joined with us Keith Finley, a professor at the University of Wisconsin's Law School, also experienced litigating at the U.S. Supreme Court. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be with you. Thanks. Uh, professor, in this case, we've, we're dealing with Judge Bruce Schroeder, who is the longest serving circuit court judge in Wisconsin, who's made it clear, I think, from the start of the case that he's very much in charge. Um what do you think of some of his rulings so far early on in the trial, including the dismissal of one of the jurors who made a joke about Jacob Blake? Yeah, Judge Schrader, is, I think he's the longest sitting judge in Wisconsin, but if not, he's up there. And he's certainly well known around the state as being sort of a no-nonsense judge who sort of runs the show in his in his courtroom. And he really doesn't care what uh, what people think, which I guess is what you're supposed to, how you're supposed to approach the job of judging. Um, his rulings have, uh, by and large, reflected the vast discretion that he has under the law on a lot of these uh, on a lot of these 
questions. Um, they all, what I've seen of those rulings should suggest that they all have at least a defensible basis in the law. Um, some may have ruled differently on some of the questions. Some of them raise questions about whether the same, you know, they at least create the appearance that maybe different sets of rules are being applied for one side or another. Although, as I said, there are justifications for them under the law. In, in regard to the particular, the juror who was dismissed, um, it, I, what I, that is a perfectly appropriate ruling. Uh, and it, what it reflects, I think, is the awareness Judge Schrader has that this case is being watched carefully and both sides are looking for ways to see some sign of bias. And he wants to make sure that no one can cast aspersions or doubts on, on the process here. Um, by suggesting that anyone who was tainted by bias had a decision-making role in the process. So it didn't surprise me. So, Professor, this case is happening at the same time as the Ahmad Arbery trial. And it's very interesting, the parallels so early on in each of these cases. And in this, in this show, we're actually discussing that case, too. And we're discussing the disproportionately white jury in that case. The Rittenhouse jury is 19, 18 of whom are white. What do you make of this? It's, it's a really unfortunate circumstance because it creates, again, an appearance of, of uh, a, an unfair system. Um, it's not to say that there was anything legally wrong with picking these particular juries. Um, there may or may not have been, but uh, what what the what the Constitution re- requires is a fair cross section of the community. But that's in the basic pool. In the actual jury that's selected, it can sort of the odds can shake out in different ways so that it's it's dominated by one racial racial group or another. The Constitution does not guarantee racial diversity on a particular jury. Um, but certainly in cases like this that are so racially charged, it is uh, an unfortunate reality. It's really, it, it, it looks bad. It creates a sense of injustice that the juries are so dominated by the white community. Professor, what are your early thoughts on the self-defense uh, argument? Uh, certainly in the opening statements uh, and early testimony, that has been a central issue, of course, the prosecution is arguing that this was not a self-defense case. The defense, Rittenhouse's lawyers, are claiming that this was a clear case of self-defense. In uh, Wisconsin, you're allowed to use deadly force only if necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm. How do you think the jury will deal with this very crucial issue? Well, you know, it's ultimately a question of reasonableness under the law. And that's the jury's task, is to determine reasonableness. That's also a reason, by the way, why it's unfortunate that it's such a largely white jury, because different communities probably bring different senses of what's reasonable to the to the task. And Rittenhouse is going to be decided by a jury that that um, it brings the values of the of in particular the the, the white community. Um, whether what he did is reasonable or not, as I said, that the. the the, the jury is the is the reasonable person in the law here. They are the ones who bring the socially constructed norms and values to the task of deciding what was reasonable. I think the prosecutor's approach, obviously, from the opening statement forward, was basically to say, how could this be reasonable when this kid went to this protest, to, to these the, the riots, unprepared, 
unlawfully carrying a weapon. And then, as the prosecutor said repeatedly, of all the armed people that were there, and there were a lot of them and a lot of people carrying AR-15s, Rittenhouse was the only one who shot anyone, and he shot three people. Um, And so, obviously, what they're trying to do is say, we have lots of examples of reasonable behavior in this incident, and it didn't wind up with with shooting and killing people. That, That seems to be their tack. So, Professor, last question. How challenging is it for jurors in this type of a situation to put their pretrial knowledge aside um, and also to not be driven in their decision making by the possible consequences in the event that a not guilty verdict ends up resulting? Well, actually, I think they're going to have to confront the consequences, whether they render a guilty or a not guilty verdict, um, because the, the reality is this trial is so polarized and the and the opposite sides are so politically wound up. It, it, it's so intense. There's going to be blowback no matter what happens. And the reality, to get to your question, it's impossible for them to set it aside. The, the law operates under a fiction that it has to endorse in, or, in order to function, which is that the jurors can set that aside and decide the case fairly on the evidence. But we know from lots of psychological research that, that it's really not possible. So we just have to hope that they will do the best that they can, decide the case on the evidence. Um, but yeah, what their, their pre-existing beliefs and knowledge will inevitably have an impact on how they decide the case, as will their concerns about the kind of response they'll receive from the communities they return to. Again, that's Professor Keith Finley of University of Wisconsin's Law School. You can find out more about him and Wisconsin's law at law.wis.edu, along with cifsjustice.org. Professor, thanks again for the insight. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Well, the latest Inside Out article isn't out just quite yet, but we're lucky enough to have a sneak preview here on Legal Faceoff. Again, you can find it at Chicago Lawyer Magazine at chicagolawyermagazine.com. And column 98 discusses returning to the workplace after being away for so long due to the pandemic. As always, we've got Tina Martini and 
more than a friend of the podcast, David Sussler, joined with us, Associate General Counsel at National Material LP. David, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You're a friend with benefits, Sussler, is what Joe's <laughs> uh, well, Let's so not talk- go down that path. <laughs> talking about returning to the office, let's start with the uh, Insight Council perspective of the Insight column. David Sussler, what are some of the pros that you point out in your column to going back to actually in the office work? Well, I, I, there's no replacement for seeing your colleagues and being with your colleagues face to face. You know, I, I think it makes work more fun. It, it's energizing uh, to be with your colleagues and, and it really does enhance creativity and decision making. Uh, there's nothing like an impromptu meeting um, or uh, exchanging ideas in person. It really it, it's, it's just nice to be able to do that sometimes. Tina, the column talks about the interpersonal glue that helps, you know, bind people. And that is easier to attain when you're actually physically in the same space. Talk about that. Well, I think, you know, to David's point, um, Zoom and video conferencing, I think was absolutely the best that we could do while we were in COVID. But I think there's something about what I grew up referring to as the down the hall, having people running into people in the hallways, seeing them in the office, it just strikes up impromptu conversations that I think the more we got into COVID and the more we were using video conferencing, the more I think people just were much more formal about scheduling stuff. I mean, there were the occasional Zoom bombs that I would get from some of my colleagues. But bottom line, especially when you're an attorney who's either trying to create relationships for business development reasons, or you're a younger attorney who's trying to you know, take advantage of those mentoring moments, some of which are often the best when they're impromptu. You really can't do that when you're working remotely. I just don't think it happens the same way as it does in person. One of the challenges that your article points out is uh, going back to work involves frequently a commute, um, which leads to, of course, less time that you can spend on actual working. No matter how you spend your commute, it's not as effective as spending that half hour, two hours, three hours in front of your computer screen working. So it's going to be an adjustment, I think, for people to go back to that system where you are literally wasting time driving or commuting or you know taking the train to and from work. And it's going to be a bit of an adjustment. Is that trade-off worth it? David, what do you think? <laughs> you know, um, so yes, uh, because I think it is good uh, on balance, I think it's good to be in the office at least a few days a week. Um, you know, I try to be productive in the car. I listen, uh, I listen to the news. I listen to podcasts and I kind of miss my podcast when I was at home. Um, I'll, I, I will conduct calls, uh, on the way home, especially speaking of mentoring. I like to schedule a lot of my mentoring phone calls for my drive home. So that actually makes it easier. Um, you know, I went back to the office in August 2020, so I still had COVID traffic, which was 10 to 20 minutes shorter commute time. Um, and when you when I'm now back to really pre-COVID commute times, it, it's challenging to say, yes, it's worth it. But on balance, yes, it's worth it at least a few days a week. Tina, talk to us about what David mentioned in terms of, you know, mentoring younger attorneys. He leaves some of that for his drive home, but... Uh, I think your article talks about how, you know, that might be more effective to do in person. You know, once we're able to return back to the office, that might be an opportunity to engage with people, especially younger attorneys that you've only known 
through Zoom for a couple of years. I mean, for me, I literally have met some of the attorneys I've worked with now for almost two years for the first time recently in person, which was a little strange. So speak to us about, about that important piece of it. Sure. So the mentoring that David does is part of his mentoring and being a big brother to more, like I would say, more junior law students and lawyers who he may not necessarily work with. He doesn't work with them, but he's gotten to know them over the years through his trade association, ACC. When it comes to my mentoring of folks, I do a lot more of it of folks that I work with directly or who are part of my team or maybe even outside my my team, but at the firm. And I think that when you're in your very early stages of your career and you are trying to learn how to lawyer, there's a certain amount of it that I think has been very effective over Zoom, the substantive lawyering through email, through Zoom meetings to discuss, you know, hardcore comments made to work drafts. But I think that there's a lot of nuance to practicing law, particularly as it relates to working with clients, shadowing people watching their body language, if you're a litigator, understanding the poise that is needed when you are in court, for example, I think there's a a great loss of that sort of, you know, um, body language and um, things that are not, you know, overtly communicated that you lose if you're not there shadowing a lawyer, going to court with them, being able to watch them in action. I think that it's, it's more valuable to have those sorts of interactions in, in person. And I do mention in the column that as a young lawyer, there were just opportunities that I got literally by being around at a certain time, even if it was after hours, and there were partners around who needed somebody. The first person they saw was me or, you know, it's by happenstance, but I ended up getting opportunities that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten. And I think that's a critical part of an attorney's development. You know, can I jump in here? I, I agree 100% with Tina. It, there's, there are things you just can't get by Zoom. And she just reminded me of, of a story. I'll, I'll make it quick. When I was a young lawyer taking a deposition, um, and there was a more senior lawyer from a, for representing a co-defendant sitting next to me. And I kind of realized I was asking too many questions. I should have stopped, but I was too young to understand. And he literally kicked me under the table. But I got the message from the kick under the table. And it stuck with me for the rest of my life. Then, you know, stop asking questions already and think about it. You don't get that over Zoom. You can't kick somebody. You can't give the hand signal under the table, something like that. Those are some of the most valuable lessons uh that you just lose over zoom. So the takeaway would be more by David Sussel. You heard it here first, more physical assault of your (laughs) employees. The more David is missing the ability to actually kick people more. So that that's a good headline to take away from this, uh, this podcast. Last question on legal face up for both of you. And again, the article uh, is a really interesting one. As we all return to work is, you know, speaking of getting back to work and getting back to a more formal process of doing what we do, Our favorite artist, as we always end up with, is Bruce Springsteen. We're all desperate for Bruce Springsteen to get off the couch, get away from the, you know, Zoom, get back to work. Now, we saw one collaboration with John Mellencamp, one of my favorites, that was released. But we want more, David, Tina. We want more. We want Bruce to get back to work, get back to the office, even if his office is just, you know, down the uh, estate to his recording studio. When will we see Bruce getting back to work, producing new records, and most importantly, touring. Will that be in 2022? What's the early forecast, David, as a veteran 
prognosticator of all things Springsteen. Well, Springsteen himself says he'll be on the road in 2022. Yes, but does he mean like literally on the road to go get diapers or to go get, uh, you know, <laughs> to play concerts and tour? That's what uh, he means. That's what we hope. Live and in person. And I will be there with a mask on. I believe that. I think he's going to tour in 2022. I think it's been way too long. And I think he realizes time is not on the E Street Band side. It's not on all, I mean, it's not on our side, you know, any, anybody's, but especially that band. I think there's things they want to do creatively before they have to hang it up. Hey, the Stones are out there doing it. If the Stones could be performing. Not Charlie Watts. Not Charlie Watts, unfortunately. But yeah, the Stones are out there. So we're hoping that, Joe, we see a return to the office for all of us soon, and Bruce Springsteen especially. Was that your metaphor for kicking me under the table? Because I, <laughs> I, I understood it. I, I took the hint. Uh, keep an eye out for the latest Inside Out article on chicagolawyermagazine.com. Big thanks to David Sussler and Tina Martini. We'll be moving on here on the Legal Faceoff podcast in WGN. time to wrap up this installment of Legal Faceoff with the Legal Grab Bag. And our two guests we have joined with us today, friend of the podcast, Professor Aya Gruber, a professor of feminism, criminal law, and critical race theory at Colorado Law. Check out her book, The Feminist War on Crime. Professor Gruber, so thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. Along with Roger Badish, also with some professoring in his bio, but a longtime radio veteran and just recently wrapped up his historic career at WGN Radio. Check out his book, The Unplanned Life. Roger, great to see you. Thanks a lot, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure right. to have both of you, especially uh, legendary Roger. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Rich, we start off with something we talked about earlier in the podcast, the Astro World topic, but this one with a few more layers, a security officer also claiming that he was injected with drugs while trying to settle an incident during the music festival. Yeah, obviously tragic circumstance that we're getting our heads around, but from a legal perspective, inevitably what we see following an incident like this uh, are the you know attorneys coming out in droves. In fact, one of our guests just mentioned that uh, on the night in question, on Friday night, there were actually attorneys already on the scene, which is not uncommon. Uh, we're talking about defense lawyers. There were probably you know some ambulance chasers, for lack of a better term, uh, out there. But you know, I, I've you know, it's very common for defense lawyers like me to get out on the scene the night of, the day of, to start investigating and establish uh, privilege and things like that. So, uh, Tina, we have seen already lawsuits filed, and there will be many more lawsuits. You know, against all sorts of people, against uh, Travis Scott, of course, and against uh, the promoter, um, the venue itself, the security. Those are all defendants that will come into this case. Uh, what are your thoughts early on about the liability, both civilly and criminally, of these different entities? Well, I think theoretically speaking, Rich, all of them and even more can be potentially liable. And I think in the coming days, there's going to be a lot more that we find out. I mean, one of the you know sub themes of the stories is that Travis Scott should be liable because he's had a history at his shows of um, inciting his crowds to behave in very similar ways to the way that this crowd behaved. And so some believe that he has a history of it. And also that from his vantage point on the stage, that he saw that things were starting to get out of control 
um, quite a while before um, he personally did something about it. At least these are what the allegations are. There's also allegations um, that a security guard and others may have been injected with um, with drugs, and that may have caused um, certain people to pass out, have reactions. I mean, there's a whole host of ways that this unknown drug could have made people react. And, and so I think there's a lot of fact gathering left to be had. And I think the lawyers that are going to jump in and file cases are doing it now because they want to be the first um, in a line of what, as you said, which is going to be a multitude of lawsuits while people are still trying to figure out what exactly happened. Professor, you teach criminal law. Obviously, we're interested in your perspective on the criminal liability here, certainly from a civil perspective. Again, we've seen and will see uh, many civil lawsuits for damages against the defendants in this case. But criminally, where do you think the liability lies, if any, in this case? I mean, I think it's possible that there could be criminal charges coming out of this. When you when you look at this incident, you know, eight people and, you know, dozens of people injured. It's the worst concert casualty event since 1993 in Rhode Island when they had that uh, big fire at one of, you know, at a rock concert and 100 people died. And there were hundreds of charges of manslaughter that came out of that case um, against the band manager and the venue owner. Um, now, that was a case that involved pyro, right? But you can imagine that this is a case that involves sort of a different kind of powder keg. Poor planning, riling up the crowd, a history. Travis Scott pled guilty in 2015 uh, for disorderly conduct, for encouraging people to jump the barricades at Lollapalooza. So I don't think it's a stretch to think that it's possible that um, criminal charges could come out of it. I think it's less likely than the Great White Fire, just because it was so, it was a smaller venue, you can identify all the people, and there are a lot of moving parts here, but I think it could be possible. Roger, you've covered stories like this for years, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. mass casualty events at different concerts. How do you think this one is different or do you think this is the inevitable, unfortunate conclusion to these large scale events with, you know, less security seemingly than ever? Well, reading up a little bit on it, um, uh, since I haven't had to report on it since my last uh, news shift um, about two weeks ago, but um, I did some reading up on it. And the uh, security had been beefed up since his last concert in Houston. This was his hometown. Uh, apparently, at the last his last concert in Houston, there were also the same uh, situation: crowd moving forward, injuries. Uh, I believe there was one death reported, if I can remember the details from that. Skimming through it, but because of that, according to police that security had been beefed up at this concert because of that. And something that that strikes me as a little unusual is that the police chief apparently came into his dressing room before the concert and asked him to cancel because he had some, he had concerns that there were going to be injuries, possible deaths. That is what the police chief is claiming. And the other concern is, I know that when you, the spotlights are shining on you on stage, because obviously I've been on many stages around the world, um, you can't see the audience in the dark. Now, uh, I didn't check on the time of day, and I know it was outside, 
but there was pyrotechnics behind them. There were lights shining on them. But still, to go on for 40 minutes after the surge and be claim you were unaware, well, those things strike me as unusual. Um, Yes, there are going to be lawsuits, as you mentioned. There have been two filed already, one against him, one against Live Nation, uh, the the venue, um, and the ages involved, too. I think the youngest was 14. Uh, that uh, w- was killed in the um, in the surge. It, you're going to have lawsuits more. Uh, it may turn into, I don't know what the criteria is, the minimum for class action uh, from the group of people who were injured and who were killed in this. Um, it, it, there's got to be something in the law. Because, you know, I only play a lawyer on TV. I'm not a real one. But there's got to be something in a legal argument that can claim previous knowledge or 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 um, knowledge ahead of time that there could be issues and take measures to try to prevent it. Yeah, certainly uh, a big part of the a big part of the negligence case, Roger, will be that they were aware. Any of the defendants were aware of this issue before, failed to mm-hmm. take steps to remedy it. So that's a great point, Joe. We'll move on to the. Uh, Arbery and Rittenhouse trials. And we've already covered a little bit, but, um, you know, we want to get our guest perspective on that as well. Uh, Tina, um, again, we've now talked about the Arbery and Rittenhouse cases with some, you know, prominent experts in those areas, but I want to get everyone's perspective on, you know, one issue that is pretty troubling that's common to both cases, right? This, this jury makeup. Um, I don't know how you have a jury, especially in the Arbery case, which is a very prominent case of three white individuals accused of murdering a black individual. I don't know how you have that jury in a county that is one third African-American, yet only have one African-American on the jury. To me, that's, you know, pretty troubling and calls into we'll call the entire verdict the question even before we get to that point. I completely agree, Rich, and it's going to um, I mean, it's just very troubling that this is where we are as our guests met, our guests mentioned the professor. Um, he mentioned that from a constitutional perspective, it's the pool of people that you're considering as jurors um, that has to really reflect, um, you know, the demographics of, of, of the case where it's being tried. And so at the end of the day, if there are various reasons from a technical perspective why certain jurors are called out, um, that ends up not being a constitutional issue. I agree with you, though, that it's very troubling. Um, and there's obviously been a lot of press around how troubling it is, both for attorneys that are watching this closely, as well as for the family. Um, and, 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 and it's really um, and it's it's scary to think what's going to happen either way, frankly, with how this case pans out. But if there ends up being a not guilty verdict. And we'll get to Professor uh, Gruber's uh, thoughts on that. But, but Roger, what are your thoughts on either the Rittenhouse jury or the Arbery jury so far or, or any other quick thoughts on any aspects of these dueling trials that are uh, very captivating right now? Well, the Arbery one is, is one that I have some concerns about. Uh, obviously, the jury makeup, the selection process, and the fact that uh, prosecution can reject X amount for no reason whatsoever. They, the judge cannot question their reason. But again, I'm wondering why after you've got 
this jury selection, even if you had a proportionate number of African-Americans, Hispanics, whites in the initial jury pool, that it ends up this way. The judge claims that it's outside of his purview to question that. That I, I, I have a lot of concerns about that makeup. The Rittenhouse trial, uh, boy, I'm watching that. I know I don't have to report it anymore, but I am very concerned about that. I've been watching the testimony, not constantly, but I catch up on it. And um, I'm just following it right now. I'm not calling anything into question yet. I'm following the testimony. Professor, how could the judge in this in the Arbery case say this court has found that there appears to be intentional discrimination? That seems a pretty, pretty clear violation of the Constitution. Right. Yet he sat this jury. Don't those two things inherently conflict and, and also conflict with the Constitution? I think it's a real problem that he sat this jury. Um, it's just he's created another layer of what's already a powder keg, right? Like he, he's, he's making the amount of powder in the keg bigger. And so how does this happen? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty good example of what like critical race theorists would call white supremacy in the white baseline. So let me, let me tell you how this happened. So whenever you're picking a jury, um, lawyers get to challenge jurors for cause. So maybe if I'm the brother of one of the accused, right, you can challenge me for cause, you know, the judge is obviously going to say, yeah, that's fine. Um, and then you, you challenge others for cause. Maybe somebody's a former police officer and you say, well, you know, he can't be objective. And the juror says, well, I can be objective. And then the judge can deny and say, well, even though he's a former police officer, I don't think you have shown that he's biased enough for me to strike for cause. Right. So you get unlimited amount of strikes for cause. Okay. Um, so they go through all that and then they have a jury in the box and then you get a second type of strike that's called a peremptory strike. And that means a lawyer can look at a juror and say, ooh, this, this person looks pretty law and order to me, or I don't like that this person is a nurse or whatever. For whatever reason, you look at a juror and you think they're going to be bad for your case, you can strike them, right? And so then you can imagine in the history of criminal and civil trials, we had a bunch of mostly prosecutors striking black jurors in cases where the defendants were black. And this led, you know, and they don't have to give a reason because you're allowed a certain amount of peremptory strikes. I think it, in this case, it was like seven. I'm not 100% sure that you could get rid of a juror for any reason. Well, what this led to was a case in the 1980s where the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can strike jurors peremptorily for any reason, except, you know, for racial reasons, except if you're striking them on account of race. And what happens is if, you know, either the prosecutor or defense notices a pattern of using these strikes to, to, you know, create an all white jury, um, you can then bring it up to the judge and say, Hey, look, they're using their peremptory strikes in a racial manner. And then the judge turns to, in this case, it would be the defense attorney and says, well, look, I, I see you've been striking, you know, using your strikes on black people left and right. Why are you doing this? And then the attorney supplies an answer and the judge decides whether they're satisfied with an answer. So here was the attorney's answer, basically. Well, you know, a lot of these black jurors, they they knew of this case. They saw the video. They had strong opinions 
on the case and they knew some of the players and that's why, right? And even though that didn't rise to the level of cause, you know, we're doing it because of that, not because of their race. The problem I have with this argument and not having, you know, heard the two hours of arguments they had on it is almost all of the jurors in this town. And by the way, the county is a third black. That town is 55% black. So yeah, one juror from 55% black. So a lot of people in town, black and white, small town, knew the players. They'd all seen the video. They all had strong opinions. But the people that were making it through were the people who said, after watching that horrific video, I still don't know what happened. So think about the people that are being sat on that jury. It's not the people who watch that video and are like, I'm horrified, but I still think I can listen to the facts. Right. And, and especially if they're black, I'm a black person. I saw the video. I'm horrified. And I can but I can listen to the facts. They 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 got out. It's the white people who said, I watched the video and I don't know. And, th- and that's the jury you're going to sit. That to me is extremely problematic. On to the next topic, rich experts are calling for negligence on the set where Alec Baldwin accidentally shot and killed a cinematographer and injured a director. Yeah, I mean, lots of new developments in this case, Joe. Um, you know, Alec Baldwin uh, has come out now and, of course, is trying to deflect liability from himself, saying that there should be you know, more regulations on movie sets. Um, there has been talk about a conspiracy. Uh, the cinematographer's Lawyers have uh, alleged sabotage on behalf, you know, that the guns were, uh, you know, there was some sabotage involved in, in having the guns loaded. Um, of course, Donald Trump has weighed in and accused uh, Baldwin of being, I think his words were uh, cuckoo pants or something like that. Some very legal term uh, saying that, you know, this is an example of Alec Baldwin's continued mental issues. Um but ultimately, we're going to see, I think, some criminal charges here, for, you know, fairly soon. Uh, of course, you know, investigation takes a while. Again, we talked about investigation in the Astroworld case. This case, there's dozens of, you know, crew members involved. So the investigation will take some time. But, you know, I expect to see some criminal charges here fairly soon. And, of course, there'll be, there'll be some civil litigation as well. I agree, Rich. I mean, when you look at what happened, even without a context to it, it was horrific. I mean, to hand a gun over and say it's a cold gun and then there's bullets in it. I mean, that's crazy. But apparently this wasn't the first incident on this set. This had happened before at least once or twice where um, there were live bullets in, in, in a gun. And so there's a certain level of knowledge that at least is being presumed among certain people who had control over the situation on the set. and. When you have people who end up getting killed as a result of it, I absolutely agree with you that at the at bottom, criminal charges, there will be criminal charges. The question is how it will play out. Professor, who's going to get charged criminally? If I mean, if, I think if anybody is going to get charged criminally, it would be the armorer and the assistant director, um, the armorer who was responsible for making sure that that gun was not loaded and the assistant director who was supposed to double check the gun and didn't. And, and said it was a cold gun when he handed it to Alec Baldwin. And it's interesting to me because the armorer is sort of claiming that there was sabotage, like intentional sabotage by another crew and put, putting the bullets in there. So that's going to be interesting. Um, Roger, Ireland Baldwin, who is Alec Baldwin's daughter, has made, uh, put on Instagram, Instagram, quote, 
comparing the rage over Travis Scott's show to the reaction that her father got. She's basically saying that there's cancel culture involved in both situations. Kind of an interesting take on two uh, very tragic events. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think cancel culture is uh, more opinion than legal. Uh, and if we're dealing with the legality of things, um, uh, my question then is, why are we still in this day and age using live ammunition and guns on a movie set or TV set? There's no reason for that. Now, if we get the legality of it, whoever had the responsibility. And it sounds like it's the armorer, whether they claim sabotage or not, or, or the person who was handed the gun uh, to Baldwin. Uh, I, I, I think we need to get past the rhetoric and get to the facts. All right, Rich, your time to shine a hot button issue on your mind. Zayn Malik charged with pushing his mother-in-law, Yolanda Hadid. Well, of course, Joe, my love for One Direction is a uh, long time and well documented on this on this podcast. In fact, uh, we were just in uh, New York last weekend, my daughter and I seeing the great Harry Styles in Madison Square Garden. We'll be seeing him in L.A. in his in a couple of weeks and his former bandmate in One Direction, Zayn Malik was charged recently, was arrested and charged with four counts of harassment resulting from an incident involving Zane's mother-in-law. Not not technically the mother-in-law, because I don't think he's married to uh, Gigi Hadid, but um, there was an incident where uh, uh, the mother, Yolanda Hadid, who is the mother of Zane's partner, Gigi Hadid, came over to the house, and I guess Zane's perspective is that she wasn't invited that led to an altercation where he physically, by all accounts, pushed her into a dresser. And that led to these charges being filed against him, to which he's filed a uh, or he's responded to uh, with no contest. So uh, this is not the first incident involving Zayn Malik, who it should be noted, left the band early. And many blame uh, him on the breakup of the great One Direction. But uh, Tina, the Real Housewives are always getting into some hot water here. And obviously an unfortunate incident involving allegedly pushing his uh, his partner's mother. Well, yeah, it's going to always be a he said, she said, right? But ultimately, um, I think he pled no contest here, which leads me to believe that, you know, and he's, this is not his first um, run in with the law, so to speak. But I do agree with you where, where there's a housewife, there's drama. So um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, he chalks this up to having an altercation with his partner's mother when his partner wasn't even around, sort of insinuating she had no business of being there. But ultimately, he wants to put this past him because of their daughter and presumably not wanting her to see all these headlines about her father when she gets older and knows better. I think she's like one year old. So you know, it's just sad. It, it's sad when these things happen and, you know, you'd think that they'd find a better way than to have these sorts of skirmishes and then have them hit the press. Professor, we're really making you earn your uh, appearance today because we're really availing ourselves of your expertise, not only in criminal law, but listen, you, you teach feminism. And part of the dynamic here is Zayn Malik is saying that his partner's mother doesn't have a right to come into the house and you know, maybe take over some of their physical space. I'm sure she, her perspective is I have a right to spend time with my, you know, my, my grandchild. I don't know if it's a girl or a boy, but there are some elements of some feminist issues perhaps at play here as well. 
Well, yeah, this is a sort of, um, I, you know, I would file this under a domestic violence case. It's a family violence case, right? It's, um, and it also fits sort of that gendered, you know, it's, it's the man and the young man against the woman. And, you know, like all of these domestic violence cases are so complicated, right? There is a sort of, you know, he said, she said element of it. There's also like, you know, young parents stress, the mother-in-law, they might not get along. Who who knows what the history here is? I tend to think just in general that, you know, involving the police and all this and high profile is just really bad for families and really bad for that baby. So, I mean, my hope is that they can resolve it, that there can be some healing moment in there. Um, but I just like... I, who knows? It seems like he was dropped from his label and now his marriage is falling apart. And I just don't know if that's good for anybody um, versus maybe some alternatives where as a family, you know, he can take accountability, but also work it out in some other way. Right, Tina. This woman took the label crazy coupon lady to a whole nother level. Lori Ann Talons acquired almost $32 million for fake coupons that she ended up using in home renovations and lavish vacations. Yeah, so she's actually the criminal couponer to you, Joe. (laughs) So yeah, so she's gotten 12 years in jail. Her husband, her partner in crime, got about seven years and change um, in, in prison. And you're right. I mean, they sold nearly $32 million of coupons um, to many, many people. Um, she apparently has some sort of experience in graphic design. She took coupon barcodes, made counterfeit coupons, sold them online under the name MasterChef. She used encrypted communication channels in order to communicate with people who wanted to buy these coupons. Um, and then she um, shipped them using the mail. So there's the mail fraud part of her 12 years in prison. Um, but ultimately what happened was, you know, and she used cryptocurrencies to try to like stay, stay you know, below the radar. But ultimately someone, I think, sniffed that these coupons were not legit and um, reported her to the coupon information center, which apparently is... Who knew, who knew there was such a thing? Now I know the next time I come across a suspicious looking coupon, who to report it to. But apparently this agency in turn purchased some of these coupons to sort of figure out whether they were legit or not, uh, determined they were not legit, and then reported her to the FBI. They raided her house, found over a million dollars in coupons, like designs for coupons for like 13,000 products as as the fbi said she had coupons literally coming out of her pockets so um i mean this is incredible um i can't believe they got away with it for as long as they did i never really thought that someone would think of this as a great business enterprise but i mean she sold almost 32 million dollars worth of coupons so amazing yeah, Roger, I'm not a couponer myself, not because I don't think, you know, I don't like to save money. I sure do. But, you know, just the idea of carrying that little thing and then, you know, having the person behind the counter telling me it's expired, which inevitably it is, right? Like those Bed Bath & Beyond coupons itself, like we're, you, know, <laughs> you always try to convince the person that give me a break, it's not expired. But if you look at the picture of all the coupons on this woman on the home, on the on the counter, it looks like one of those drug busts where they, you know, they put down these you know, uh, uh, piles of cocaine. This woman has millions of coupons, thousands of coupons. So thank I don't God. know how she kept them straight. 
Seriously, it, right. it, it was a massive. I applaud her ability and her husband's ability to keep everything straight. Because like you, many moons ago, I used to do coupons in that little pouch in the grocery store. I couldn't keep track of them either. I mean, buy two, get one free. This is only good during this week or these hours. If you and I couldn't keep track of it, her ability to do that is amazing. I think maybe she needs, when she's out of jail, she needs to go and start her own school on how to effectively use coupons and keep up to date on them. That's a good question, though. Maybe she could get a coupon that gives her a two-for-one deal for for her years in in prison. There you go. You serve one, you get two free or something. (laughs) Professor. I just, you know, like I always thought that when I looked at barcodes, they're just little lines. And I'm like, why can't some good graphic designer? I mean, we use barcodes for everything, including probably some at the jail for for what you get. Like, why couldn't a good graphic designer just copy barcodes? And I guess it happened. And she got caught likely because of the scale of her operation, right? Like there was bound to be after a while, one person who just, you know, was like, no. But like, how many people are at home? Doing that on a much smaller scale, who are who are who are just good at copying barcodes and getting the discounts, and why? Like, do the retailers just say, "Okay, this is just a cost of doing business"? That's that's what I was kind of wondering on that because it seemed like kind of easy to do. Rich, this reminds me of that scene from Goodfellas where Ray Liotta is being chased by uh, by the helicopter. <laughs> Yeah, His operation what, is finally uh, the FBI is finally on to him. So, yeah. Except it's uh, it's it's coupons for yarn instead of cocaine. Yeah, well, rather than cocaine, but yeah, you know, same difference. Same difference. No, and he never would have got busted too if his brother just would have kept stirring the sauce. Right. Uh, <laughs> all right. I've heard about suing your ex-wife, but what about suing your actual wife? Uh, that's what somebody tried to do. John Walworth slipped on his fiance's shoes outside the basement door in February of 2018 while he was doing her a favor, fell down a flight of stairs, racked up over $80,000 in medical bills. But the courts say that he can't sue her, Tina. Yeah, so you nailed the story, Joe. So, I mean, this is for all of you listeners out there who are thinking about suing your spouse over a slip and fall case, probably not something you want to be doing anytime soon. So an Ohio appeals court held last month, um, they actually found for his current wife, who is the same person he's suing, found for summary judgment. Um, As Joe said, he went out, bought her, I think it was some vinegar, had a box, was in her house at the time. Um, This happened, I think, while they were engaged, but before they got married. So he actually sued her after they got married like a few months later. So he's walking in, he's trying to bring a box of vinegar to the basement. Her shoes are right there by the foot, by the top of the stairs. He trips and falls and stumbles down the whole set of stairs, breaks bones in his leg and his arm and his, in his um, hand. And then he decided, you know, after three surgeries and physical therapy and $80,000 in bills, he decides in October of 2019 after he wed this woman in May of 2019, that that was the time to sue her. So um, a three-judge panel decided in Ohio after um, his wife moved for summary judgment that no, he could not 
Sue, um, that the shoes were open and obvious and anybody who was using reasonable precautions would have seen the shoes. And um, so that's all she wrote on that one. But that was a big laugh, Rich. That was pretty entertaining. Well, you know, it, it's a funny story, but it, it's it. The, the, the lesson is a sound legal principle, which is, you know, pay attention to where you're going and don't file stupid lawsuits when you're not paying attention. I mean, any man knows that women generally have many shoes and, you know, often these are left around the house. I've got a daughter, 16 year old who leaves her crap everywhere. And I know this to be the case, including her shoes. So guess what? I pay attention. When I'm walking, I assume that she's going to leave her shoes there because that's what she does. And if I am carrying four big jugs of vinegar, which happens every day, by the way, um, and I trip, that's largely on me because I'm aware of it. And the law says if you're aware of something, and even if you're not aware, if it's open and obvious, you're not owed a legal duty. Get the hell out of here. Roger, does that make sense legally? You know, unfortunately, it's a reverse case in our house. Uh, my wife, who unfortunately has some difficulty walking, even though my shoes are behind a chair in the front room where no one would walk, I'm told to move my shoes to where they belong. So I kind of sympathize, but then no, because why did you marry her? <laughs> and why yeah. did you sue her after you married her? Exactly. That's- if you made a decision to marry her, like those things can't coexist. I don't see how this marriage <laughs> survives. Yes, like Rich said, no more stupid lawsuits, credible lawsuits like this one. A woman seeking $5 million from Kellogg because she thinks the company is falsely claiming how much actual strawberries are in Pop-Tarts, Tina. Yeah, so she's suing for $5 million in damages and is accusing um, accusing Kellogg of putting more pear and apple in their um, whole grain frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts. It's actually um, an interesting way to argue the case, which I'll get to in a second. Um, But she's claiming that the labeling is misleading, especially when you look at the front end of the name of the product, which is whole grain, which she claims is probably for the most part accurate that that creates an expectation for consumers that the back end of the name of the product, so the strawberry Pop-Tart part, it will actually mean that it is strawberries, but she claims that it's pears, it's apples, that there's some you know flavoring and coloring that's put into the filling um, that is really not strawberry much at all. What's really interesting is that one of our prior guests, Spencer Sheehan, is the uh, is the esteemed lawyer who filed this lawsuit. She's not the only person who filed a lawsuit like this over strawberry Pop-Tarts against Kellogg. There are a couple of other cases in Illinois as well. But it's funny because so he was the vanilla guy um, and was very entertaining when we interviewed him a few months ago. Apparently, Law Street Media says that he files on average two to three fraud suits per week and that he has filed the most food-related fraud lawsuits in federal court over the past two years. All of that notwithstanding, my favorite quote, and I really wish that we had gotten Spencer to say this when he was a guest on our show, he says, quote, I lose a lot more than most people. What a great advertising slogan. (laughs) I lose more than most people. So I think we should have Spencer back on again, Rich. 
Some of his other lawsuits uh, are that uh, Frito-Lay doesn't use enough real lime juice in its hint of lime Tostitos. Uh, he said that Coors suggesting that it's pineapple and mango flavored Vizzy uh, being sources of vitamin C are uh, incorrect. He also said that pudding, which is being advertised as made with real milk, is deceptive because it's made with fat-free skim milk. So, you know, I'm torn on these lawsuits, Professor, because as someone who defends many frivolous lawsuits, I think a lot of this is garbage. On the other hand, you know, we wouldn't have things like seatbelts or, you know, other laws that protect consumers without lawsuits like these. So, again, we covered the hot coffee lawsuit last time, the newest ones. I think a lot of this is, you know, junk, but there is some merit to some of these kind of lawsuits. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I'm sympathetic because I'm also kind of mad at it because I recently stopped drinking coffee made after I found out about the trans fat lawsuit that they said they're trans fat free, but they're really not. And it's in litigation. I'm like, well, that's not good. You know, so I do think there is a principle there of, you know, you have this like total junk and fine. I mean, I, I never thought that hazelnut fat free, sugar free coffee mate was probably, you know, a wholesome thing for me. Um, right. So on the one hand, you know, it's like, all right, you know, if they, like who really thought there were strawberries and strawberry pop tart, I was really surprised that there was fruit in it at all. I would have thought it was some form of chemical sugar and red dye, but, but like, fine. Right. Like there's that side of it. Like, all right, we know we're eating junk, but I do think there are people who can be deceived by this clever marketing into thinking that because of one little element of this really junky food, that it's somehow healthy. And I think that's where like that's a public health problem and a consumer protection problem. So I I am sympathetic to that part of it. Roger, a Pop-Tart is inherently designed to survive a nuclear war there. There that and rats will survive the apocalypse. So would anyone really think that there's actual nutritional content, actual fruit in a strawberry Pop-Tart, even though it's called strawberry Pop-Tarts? They're they're meant to. You know, not 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 have any such products. I think uh, I take my junk food seriously. Um, I am a pop tart connoisseur since uh, my first days in college. Um, I existed uh, completely one whole year on cinnamon brown sugar pop tarts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so I have kind of an affinity towards it. But if you know of this, the viral. A video star, the gentleman, I believe, from Africa, who looks at videos of how people do complicated things to do simple things, and he does this, and then he does that. If you're looking at strawberry Pop-Tarts for your daily intake of fresh strawberries, <laughs> I would sit there with the box of strawberry Pop-Tarts and a bowl of fresh strawberries and go... <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Enough said. Joe, let's go around the room and end off the segment with your favorite Pop-Tart flavor. And the key question is heat or not heat? Toast or not toast? That's really defines you as a person, whether you toast or don't toast your Pop-Tart. Joe, start us off. Definitely toasted for the more traditional. I'm more of a blueberry than a strawberry. I don't care how much is artificial or not. If it's a dessert Pop-Tart, like the cinnamon sugar, I consider a dessert one, or the s'mores, those go in the freezer. If you haven't tried it, you got to try it. It's fantastic. Wow. We've scratched on it. We've really, we've really hit a uh, issue with Joe. Tina, favorite and toast or not toast? 
blueberry, just like my pie, and absolutely toasted. Mm. Professor? Cinnamon sugar toasted, but I don't think I've had a Pop-Tart in like 30 years. Oh, wow. (laughs) More for Roger. Roger. Yeah. Well, I just got back from the store yesterday with my weekly purchase of uh, Pop-Tarts. Of course, cinnamon brown sugar. I buy the large package of 24. Uh, I just don't like going to the store all the time to have to buy them. And I'm using toasted for special occasions, especially when the weather gets a little bit colder outside. How long does it take you to go through a box of 24? I'm afraid to ask. Um, could be about four days. <laughs> Man who I told you. Likes. I like uh, chocolate, you know, old school chocolate fudge. I like those toasted. But the problem is they're so damn good. And that those little, you know, I, those little sugar cubes are so enticing that you burn your mouth. That's the problem. You stick it in there and you get Pop-Tart mouth. So that's a danger. That's maybe that's a good loss right there, Joe. You know? I still can't get over the intro to this, that a guy whose nickname was Vanilla Guy's slogan is, I lose more than I win. I mean, if your nickname is Vanilla Guy, <laughs> I feel like you're just kind of inevitable for that. Big thanks to Professor Aya Gruber, again, uh, from Colorado Law. Check out her book, The Feminist War on Crime. You can find her on Twitter at Aya Gruber. That's A-Y-A Gruber. Also check out her website, ayagruber.com. And for Roger Badish. Check out his book, The Unplanned Life. Follow him on Twitter at TeacherRB. For Rich Lenkov, for Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand. This has been Legal Faceoff. We'll see you next time here on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...